I'll say that again because Dennis thought it was good. (laughs) And because my mic wasn't on. (laughs) There is a massive gap between our ideals of unity in the church and our experience of unity in the church. If we're honest, we need to admit that our experience of unity in the church is not a given. In fact, our experience of unity is easily fractured and it requires a lot of maintenance. I heard a story recently from a church in another city. It's a true story. It's not from this church. Uh, There was a fellow named Jake who served as a leader in his multicultural church family. And this guy named Jake uh, did something that people often do. He, uh, He posted a meme on Facebook. Jake was really into politics and he found this meme that expressed, you know what a meme is, one of those pictures with words on top, right? He found this meme that expressed his feelings about a certain political situation. And later on, in retrospect, looking back at the situation, Jake was able to admit that even before he posted this meme, he wondered if it might be offensive to some people that he knew. In fact, he wondered to himself how it might come across for him as a white guy to post a meme featuring a pejorative picture of a black man. But he liked the point that the meme made, politically speaking, so he went ahead and posted it. Well, later on that evening... A woman in his church family, a black woman, posted something on her own Facebook page. There was no meme. There were no links. There were no names tagged. Simply these words. I can't believe somebody is getting a pass on being a racist bigot just because they're an officer in our church. Again, she didn't link to Jake's meme. She didn't tag his name. But other people connected the dots. And soon, three different people had sent Jake either links or screenshots of the Facebook post saying to Jake, I think she's talking about you. And Jake wondered to himself... How come when someone says something on Facebook about a racist bigot, three of my friends immediately think it's about me? Now, there are probably a lot of directions that that story can run in, but the issue I'm trying to highlight is simply this. If we're honest, we need to admit that whatever our ideals of unity may be in the church, our experience of unity is not a given. 
our experience of unity could be easily fractured by one Facebook post or by one comment. Our unity, our experience of unity can be easily fractured and it requires regular maintenance. Now the church is supposed to consist of people with different perspectives. Men and women. Fiery college students and slower moving older folks. No offense to the older folks or to the college students. The church is supposed to include people from different cultural backgrounds. And in addition to all of that, the church by design is supposed to include Christians at all levels of maturity. Which is to say that as soon as one immature believer begins to make progress in discipleship, another immature believer is supposed to move in the pew down down the pew from them, right? The church by design is supposed to include people from different backgrounds with different perspectives and people with different levels of Christian maturity. And so, of course, unity is going to be an ongoing issue in the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, if we go back to the early church... If we go back to the earliest days of the church that we read about in Scripture we find that divisions were sadly common from the earliest days of the church of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans has a lot to say about judgment and divisions. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, you know, it talks about some people say, I follow Apollos. Some people say, I follow Paul. Some people say, I just follow Jesus. The super spiritual ones, right? Um, It says a lot about division. Paul's letters to Timothy have so much to say about the problems of division. And here in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, like the letter to the Romans, like the letter to the Corinthians, like the letters to Timothy, and like so many other parts of the New Testament, This book of Ephesians has a lot to say about the problems of division in the church. Why? Because whatever our ideals might be about unity in the church, our experience of unity is much more easily fractured and requires much more maintenance than most of us realize. It's been so since the beginning. And here in the book of Ephesians, we've reached the moment when the Apostle Paul is going to turn his attention directly to one of the main issues that he'll talk about for the rest of this letter. As we've moved through the book of Ephesians so far, we've heard the good news of God's amazing grace that he adopts us into his family. That Jesus' redeeming work has set us free. That we are sealed by by the work of the Holy Spirit who lives among us. The prayer for our eyes to be open increasingly 
to the glory of God. The message of the great message that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made us alive. It's not by our own works. It's all by grace and through faith. We've heard this message of amazing grace preached to us week after week as we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians. But now that message of amazing grace is going to get applied to the messiness of human relationships, specifically in the church family. And as we pay attention to how Paul begins to apply the message of amazing grace, or to use a phrase that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians and nowhere else, the gospel of peace, as we think about the gospel of peace, the message of amazing grace, how does it apply to the messiness of relationships in a real church like ours. And as we follow the way that Paul addresses that issue, we're going to need to notice something about our history, something about our hope, and something about our present situation. First, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 tells us something about our history. More specifically, it tells us that our history is one of distance and division. Distance from God and division from others. Look with me again, if you would, at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, in light of this message of the gospel of peace, in light of this message of amazing grace, there's something that you need to remember You need to remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, labeled as the uncircumcised by those who label themselves as the circumcision, a circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Like many of the churches that Paul ministered to, there was a deep divide that had something to do with ethnic tensions between the Jewish folks in the church of Jesus Christ and what the Jewish folks would call the Gentile folks, the nations, all the other ethnicities, whoever they may be. Those folks who don't practice the signs of the covenant like circumcision. In fact, The book of Acts chapter 19 tells us that when Paul spent time in the city of Ephesus, he spent most of his days ministering to Jewish people in the synagogue. But then what happened? The message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of peace, could not be contained within one ethnic group in the city of Ephesus. It spread out and it began transforming the lives of Ephesian people who used to worship the goddess Artemis. And in fact, so many of these 
former Artemis worshipers were coming to faith in Jesus and having their lives totally transformed, that it was changing the economy of the city of Ephesus. The idol makers were getting frustrated with this Christian movement because they were losing business in their idol sales. And so they started, according to Acts chapter 20, something of a riot in the city against this new religion of Christianity that was spreading. And that now included not only Jewish folks, but was stealing business away from the Gentile folks who used to buy idols and worship at the temple of Artemis. And so this congregation with some Jewish folks and some former Artemis worshipers is now worshiping together. But Paul notices as they gather together for worship, there is still this dividing line. Sometimes perhaps spoken out loud. Sometimes perhaps communicated with looks that bite deeper than words. A dividing line between those who, like Saul of Tarsus in his past, would have said, we are the ones who practice circumcision. We are the ones who are chosen. And y'all are the ones who are the uncircumcision. Maybe you have a place here. You get, what this, you get, what, you get how the logic works, right? Maybe you've been let in. But don't forget who the circumcised folks are. These labels that Paul mentions in verse 11 are labels that are used to maintain a sense of division and perhaps even a sense of superiority for some in the Christian church over others in the Christian congregation. And at first... Paul says something that probably surprises those Jewish folks who wanted to think of themselves as the circumcision group. Those who really practice what God's word teaches. He speaks of their position so dismissively. What's called the circumcision. Those people who are just labeled as the uncircumcised. That circumcision stuff, he points out, is just something that's done externally. But then he turns his attention to the Gentile folks, and for a moment, it almost sounds as if the old Saul of Tarsus, with all of his air of superiority, is going to side with the Jewish folks. Of course, he's not. You've heard how the paragraph unfolds. But notice this. The Apostle Paul, being led along by the Holy Spirit, seems to think that it is helpful for us, for one reason or another, to remember our history. To remember that at one time, we were separated from the Messiah. Paul, led along by the Holy Spirit, seems to think it's helpful for us to remember that at one time, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Those of us who perhaps are used to being insiders 
in most rooms that we walk into. Those of us who are used to feeling like insiders in the workplace, those of us who are used to feeling like insiders culturally in whatever groups we're in, we may not be used to hearing people say things like this to us. You used to be an outsider. And not only that, he has some sharp things to say. Apart from Christ, and apart from the covenant promises of our Lord, we were without hope and without God in the world. Before we move on too quickly from this, let's just pause and let this sink in as an accurate description of us. At one time, we were apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, we were not inheriting all of the good and precious promises of our Lord. And apart from His covenant promises, we were without ultimate hope and separated from the one true and living God. The Apostle Paul, led along by the Holy Spirit, seems to think it's helpful for us to remember that this is our history. We were once distant from God and divided from others. But after noticing something about our history, we also need to notice something about our hope in verses 13 through 18. Look there with me if you would. Remember last week when we were looking in Ephesians chapter 2, there was all this stuff, you were dead, but then in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, there was a plot pivot, but God, God did something about your deadness. In a similar way, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 mirrors that plot line kind of thing. At one time, you had a problem. We had a problem. At one time, this was our history. Distant from God, divided from one another, without God and without hope in this world. At one time, that was our history, but then God did something about it. Look at verse 13 with me if you would. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let that sink in for a second. Remember, this is written originally to a church of folks, some of whom grew up reading the Bibles, reading the the Torah and saying their prayers and attending Jewish synagogue. One group in this church grew up following the Bible and saying their prayers. The other group in this church grew up as pagans, literally, right? Like literally. And this church gets together and Paul says, listen, God has done something not only about your separation from God, but he has done something for all of you. But now in Christ Jesus, the ones of you who were once far off from God and far off from one another... You have been brought near. How? By following Torah really well? 
By memorizing as many scripture verses as Saul of Tarsus did? By becoming Jewish and learning Hebrew? No. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off from God have been brought close by the blood of Jesus. And then notice this precious phrase, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look, here's our hope. Our hope is not that we can fix division ourselves, that we can fix our separation with God by ourselves, or that we can even fix our separation with each other by ourselves. That's not the hope that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 2. He's talking about a deeper hope and a better hope. He's talking about the hope that Jesus is our peace. That he is the foundation Of a new kind of peace with God that lays the groundwork also for a new kind of unity with one another. He is our peace. Now, what does that peace involve? He is our peace, first of all, through a demolition project. A redemptive demo day, if you will, right? Um, Some of you love... Uh, Chip and Jojo, yeah? I thought some of you did. Um, And if you love watching Chip and Joanna Gaines on TV, then you know the joy of Demo Day. A great project doesn't begin simply by building new stuff. A great renewal project begins first... When some things are taken down. A great renewal project begins not first with building new things up, but first by knocking out some walls that shouldn't be there. And the same is true in the church of Jesus Christ. In order to build a new kind of relationship with God and in order to lay the groundwork for a new kind of unity with each other, Jesus is our peace, first and foremost, through what Ephesians chapter 2 describes as a redemptive demo day. A redemptive demolition project. Verse 14, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. What is this talking about? Paul, who wrote this letter 2,000 years ago or so, was very familiar with what we call the second temple in Jerusalem. And in the second temple in Jerusalem, where Saul of Tarsus before he was renamed as Paul, many times went to worship and to learn from the rabbis. In the second temple, there was kind of this, uh, there were kind of concentric circles, if you will. At the middle of it was the place that was known as the Holy of Holies. Only a priest, a high priest, could enter this place. 
But outside of that circle was a place where men and women from the Jewish community could come and say their prayers and worship the Lord and hear teaching from Scripture. But outside of that, there was another wall that was built with five steps leading down from it. And outside of that wall was what is known as the court of the Gentiles. You see, Jewish people in the first century understood that to some degree or another, God had intended since the days of Abraham to include people of other ethnicities in the worship of Yahweh. The promises to Abraham himself, by the way, that circumcision thing is tied to Abraham and the covenant made with him. But the promises made to Abraham were not only for his family, but the promises made to Abraham were that through him, all the nations of the earth, in the Greek translation of that, all the ethnicities of the earth, would be blessed. Jewish people in the first century understood this theme that there was some sense in which people from other cultural backgrounds should be invited in to worship Yahweh, but there was this wall that stood as a wall of division reinforcing generations of of hostility and perhaps even feelings of superiority. Of those who were on the inside versus those who were on the outside of that wall. And Paul, very familiar with that wall which had stood for years as a sign of a division between the Gentiles and the rest of the people of God. Paul says, through what Jesus Christ has done, he has demoed that wall. He took a sledgehammer to it. How? He describes it here in verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now someone will think for a second and say, wait a second, didn't Jesus say I did not come to abolish the law? Is this just some kind of contradiction? No, it's not for a couple of reasons. First of all, in the original language of the New Testament, the word abolish here and the word abolish that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, I did not come to abolish the law. They're two different terms. But beyond that, they refer to two different things. What is Jesus talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, I did not come to abolish the law? He's talking about the moral law of God with its pinnacle in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's talking about the moral law of God, which he certainly did not come to abolish. But here in, here in Ephesians chapter 2, what is this talking about? This is talking about the ceremonial regulations, going back to the sign of circumcision, which would not be required for followers of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law for us. Freeing us from the dietary conditions. Christians, since before this day, were beginning to eat bacon and finding out it tasted good. 
freeing us from circumcision as a divine ordinance for covenant promises. See, Paul is pointing out that as Jesus ended or abolished that side of the law of commands and the ordinances that went with it, what he was doing was taking a sledgehammer to the dividing wall between all the nations of the earth and the people of God on the inside. Through his cross, Jesus has taken that wall down, reduced it to rubble, and sent it out to the trash heap. He has demolished the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace in part through that demo day project, but he's our peace also through his new construction project. You don't tear out walls and then just leave the rubble if you're a good builder, right? And so with Jesus Christ... He abolished the law of commandments expressed in its ordinances. Verse 15, why? So that he might create in himself a new kind of humanity in him. A new kind of humanity. One new kind of humanity in place of two. When that dividing wall is torn down, the people of God in Christ are no longer two. But one, Paul teaches, no longer divided, but united. You see, that demolition of that wall was not just for the fun of letting out a little bit of rage. Some of you like demo day for the wrong reasons, all right? It was so that something better could be built in its place, a larger space for a larger swath of humanity to all belong in the inner circle without division, and without exclusion. He himself is our peace through that demo day project and through this new construction and also through what verse 17 describes as a proclamation. Jesus came, and notice how the logic unfolds, he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. There were those who were closer than most of us to the covenants of God. But to those who were near and to those who were the farthest out from those promises, what did Jesus do? One message. One way to be close to God. All by grace and through faith. And through that one message of peace with God, all by grace and all through faith, He has created one new humanity in Him, with Him, in His family, tied to Him. And He has proclaimed that message of peace to those who, far, those who were far and to those who were near, verse 18 says, for through him we both, to the degree that we can still recognize an ethnic distinction between Jewish people and the Gentiles, to the degree that we can still see that ethnic and cultural distinction, he has made us both. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is our hope. 
And that brings us to our present situation that we need to pay attention to. The present situation described in verses 19 through 22 is that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now, instead of strangers, fellow citizens, church. In fact, let's just pause there before we go any further. Are there some folks in this room who feel to you more like strangers than fellow citizens? God's word gives us a new way of viewing those who are sitting on the other side of the room. No longer strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. No longer aliens, but now members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Many through the years have seen in that some kind of reference to the New Testament writing apostles who delivered to us the New Testament and the Old Testament writing prophets who delivered to us the Hebrew Scriptures saying in some sense there is this foundation that is laid through the Hebrew Scriptures and through the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. There is this foundation that is laid, but where does that foundation join together? What does it all rest on? What does it all converge upon? Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. But here's where this flow of thought is going. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also, church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Too often we assume That God's work in redemption is only making a new me. Now praise God that His work in redemption does make a new me. But praise God that He's doing more than that. In His work of redemption, Jesus Christ, by His amazing grace, is not only making a new me, He's making a new we. Bad grammar, but good theology, okay? (laughs) And notice how this new we is described here. It's described as a ever-growing temple for the Lord. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, we are now being added in, expanding the size and scope Of God's new dwelling place on earth. Think about this the way that the original readers of the book of Ephesians might have thought about it. Uh, The Ephesians who had grown up in Ephesus had gone many times to the temple of the great goddess Artemis of Ephesus. Her temple 
was a glorious sight to behold, known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you were only to see seven glorious works of humanity from the ancient world, this temple surely would have been among them. Or think of this idea of a temple from the perspective of the Jewish background folks who would have been reading this letter or from the perspective, or from the perspective of Paul himself, a Jewish man. In Jerusalem, there stood that great second temple made of one large stone built upon another large stone standing in all of its glory. And for all of the ways that Paul says the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, it wouldn't be torn down for another 20 years or so. It still stood. One brick after another. But here's the thing. The book of Ephesians is challenging our idea of what a temple is. Is a temple of God where God's spirit dwells something, a sight to behold, like the temple of Artemis? Is God's spirit a thing to behold like the second temple in Jerusalem? The New Testament dares to say, that God is building something far more glorious than the temple that was made for Artemis. And that God's presence now dwells in a structure far larger than that stone structure that stood in Jerusalem. The New Testament dares to tell us that God's dwelling place is being built one person at a time, From every language and every tribe and every people and every nation. A new and global temple is being built. For the glory of God. One made not by human hands and human architecture. But one made by the Spirit of God. And by the design of the Father which was empowered and enabled by nothing less and purchased by nothing less than the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You also are being built together. It's a passive verb. In fact, if you're into grammar, you may notice that pretty much all of the verbs in this passage have been passive. What are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? It's not really what this passage is about. It's about the good news of what God through Christ is already doing. We are being built together. The message then for the church is that despite our history of distance and division, we have peace because of Jesus so that we are now being built together as God's dwelling place. And while our main division points in the church today will not be a dividing line between Jewish people on the one hand and the rest of the world on the other hand, it is nonetheless essential for us as Christians in the 21st century to understand the gospel of peace 
the power of Jesus Christ to eradicate the dividing wall of hostility between those who had received the promises of God, the descendants of those who had received the promises of God and the rest of the world, the the power of Jesus to tear down that dividing wall of hostility, it needs to teach us something about how we interact with people from all kinds of backgrounds today. We need to understand the gospel of peace, which provides a foundation for peace with God and peace in the church, even in a world that is characterized by ethnic divisions and hostilities. Let me land with three ways that my prayers were turning as I was reflecting on this passage this week. Three aspects of what I think it involves for us to be built together. The first one I would describe as a divine dissatisfaction with disunity. I'm borrowing that phrase, divine dissatisfaction, from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who in 1967, when he was speaking to the Southern Christian Leadership Convention, exhorted his listeners toward what he described as divine dissatisfaction. Divine dissatisfaction is not an ungodly uncontentment. No, it is a God-given dissatisfaction with the way things are, even in the church, contrasted with the way things ought to be according to God's design. And I wonder if some of us need to make that even a little bit more personal. If we need to consider where, where am I building back walls of division even though my Lord Jesus Christ gave his life to demolish them? Where am I tolerating walls of division? Sometimes we follow the world's lead and we tolerate walls of division in the church. Walls that enable us to feel ethnic superiority over people that we would call others. Sometimes we allow other designations to give us some sense of superiority because of our background. Sometimes it's simply animosity, prejudice, jealousy, anger, an unforgiving spirit towards somebody else. As the preacher John Stott once said, how dare we build walls of partition in the community in which Jesus has destroyed them. One aspect of being built together is I think we are right to feel a gravity of divine dissatisfaction wherever disunity exists in the church. Which might lead us to a place of lament 
For some of us, it might lead us to a place of confession even. For all of us, I think it ought to lead us to a place of prayerful zeal that God would do something more. But not only divine dissatisfaction with disunity, also devotion to unity in diversity. I mentioned earlier the story uh, that I was sharing uh, of the, the fella who had posted the meme on Facebook. I'm glad to tell you that story has a happy ending. Because instead of choosing a path of hostility, he chose a path of humility. He called his sister in Christ. He listened carefully to her perspective. And upon later, upon later reflection, he said that that was a great turning point in his life. Sometimes we need to take devoted steps to unity in a congregation of diversity. Devoted steps of unity with those who are a different age level than us. Steps of unity toward those who have a different kind of educational background. Steps of unity toward those, maybe in our situation, who are from a different church background than our own. But as we understand what this passage is teaching about being built together, it should lead in part to a divine dissatisfaction wherever division exists. It should lead also to a devotion to unity and diversity. And finally, I want to suggest also, it should lead to a deep hope for the church's destiny. Why do I say that? Because who's at work? I mean, if it's all left up to you and me to make everything right, I don't have a lot of confidence. Sorry, guys. But who's at work? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the master builders. And through what Christ has done to demolish the dividing wall of hostility... Through what God's Spirit is doing around the world to build up a new dwelling place for God made up of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. We have every reason to be confident that we will land in that place that the Father has designed from before the foundation of the world. We will one day find ourselves worshiping Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in that place, our unity in the midst of diversity, our one where there used to be other, our united where there used to be divided, our near where there used to be far, in that place we will see the Father's design coming together. People from every kind of background, united together in one voice, singing the praises of the Lamb who was slain, by whose blood he has purchased.